Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Looking at Ephesians again, and I've entitled this Experience of God because I think Ephesians describes a different experiential reality. And to get at this understanding, we need to redo the deep grammar from which our experience flows, and I think Ephesians does this for us. Ephesians 1 describes the resurrection of God's people as an accomplished fact. The rule of God through his people in chapter 2, verse 6 to 7, describes it this way, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. The passage is from one cosmic arrangement to another. Or as in 2.2, we were under the cosmic reign of one world, and now there's a passage to another. And this brings us to 1.19-21. It says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So we're seated, present tense, present progressive, with Christ, in the heavenly places and in this way the power the the word here that's used in chapter 2 is the idea of cosmic power in chapter 1 it talks about ages this has changed up no longer has dominion over us and so there's a cosmic order estranged from its creator and God's rule and through Christ and his people His rule is once again being established over the principalities and powers. Revelation 11.15 describes it this way. As the passage from one kingdom to another, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. In other words, it's happening. It's a passage that we're experiencing. In describing this forever and ever arrangement that you have in uh, Revelation, and it's there in Ephesians in the term ages, in some of your translations it may be translated eternal. The theological dictionary says the concept is of time and eternity merging. Light is breaking into darkness and the light is eternal representation of the eternal and the darkness the more the light breaks in the more the darkness is passing and the word for this passage the Greek word is ion which by itself is not eternal but the picture in Revelation and in Ephesians is that this seems to be an everlasting arrangement that is being worked out. 
And what we know for sure, whatever you know about the Greek, is that God is eternal. And the idea is that in God's eternality is the source or the means of this enduring heavenly arrangement that has presently commenced. The closest we come in Greek to a special word to describe God's unique eternality is in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So the power and divinity of God are ideos. There's a special word. Only God is eternal in this sense. Only God is qualitatively eternal. Other things might share in this eternality, but are not by nature or property eternal. And so, for example, Origen, in talking about the fire of damnation, he'll use the phrase per ionion, but never per ideon. The explanation is that he does not consider the flame to be absolutely eternal. It is ionion because it belongs to the next world as opposed to the fire we experience in the present world and it lasts only as long as that age lasts. Origen never speaks of thanatos, death, idios, eternal death. There is no such phrase. Or idea punishments and torments, no such thing. Although he speaks of thanatos ionios, that is a period of time of death in which death reigns, or death in the world, or death to come, or punishment to come. So many versions of the Bible, and this is what I'm trying to, I'm going through all this painful exegesis with you, is to say I think we've got a wrong idea of what eternal is. God's eternal, nothing else is eternal, right? And so too our experience of eternality is going to be directly dependent upon our relationship to God. And so there's a series of words, it's there in Greek and Hebrew, that often get translated as eternal, and yet they are specifically not eternal. They're references to time. As the book of Timothy describes it, God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. And so God's immortality and eternality are not something that can be appropriated by humanity or invested statically in creation. We can participate in his eternality, but we can't own it. So eternity as a predicate of God, you know, that God is eternal, like immortality. It's a, a different order which transcends time and is not simply unending time. Other things might be derivatively eternal, maybe divine possessions or gifts or the covenant, the coming kingdom, but only God is intrinsically eternal. And this would include rewards and punishments or the age in which they exist. God is the singular eternal causal source so that to speak of eternal punishment or even of eternal reward is simply to identify the source 
and not necessarily the duration. That is, the duration is going to depend upon its connectedness to God. And so as David Bentley Hart, who has recently done a translation of the New Testament, notes, Ion, or Aeon, might mean a period of endless duration, but which more properly throughout the whole of ancient and late antique Greek literature and the New Testament means an age or a long period of time of indeterminate duration or even just a substantial interval. The adjective ionios never clearly means eternal in an incontrovertible sense. And so let me give you an example from the Revised Standard Version in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. This is the reading of the Revised Standard Version. That some shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That is precisely the wrong usage of the term. As Hart translates it in his version, they will pay just reparation of ruin in the age and here's the key phrase, coming from the face of the Lord and the glory of his might. The two renderings, they give very different notions of the location of eternity, and thus two very different ideas of its duration. And so in the Revised Standard Version, the eternality occurs in what is in fact an impossible category. And I'm saying this not because of necessarily just this passage, but every sense of eternality depends upon direct relationship and presence of God. As Hart translates it, it's from the face of the Lord. But the Revised Standard says it, it assigns eternality to that which cannot inherently be eternal. And this is why Hart can say an eternal hell is entirely absent from the Pauline corpus as even the thinnest shadow of a hint. It's an intrinsic impossibility. Now we've said that, by the same token, this gives us a very different picture too of our experience of God, of his coming kingdom or of his kingdom. The age of the kingdom is parallel to the age of punishment, but not as an alternative endpoint. It's an alternative reception of that which emanates from the face of God and results in the final age, as Ephesians puts it, the consummation of all things. So to put it in concrete terms, you know, we talked last week, the cosmology of the Jewish temple. It is simultaneously a spatial and temporal microcosm. That is, here's the universe represented in the temple. But it also represented a peculiar sort of temporal passage. There's the outer court representative of visible land and sea. The holy place is representative of the visible heaven. But these realms are conjoined in and through the holy of holies in Sabbath time. The whole thing is a part of a unique time experience. This is what Ephesians is describing. Ephesians is describing taking up residence in the Sabbath time experience. This picture of the invisible heaven and perhaps passage beyond time. God's not bound by time. But 
somehow connected with the visible and the finite. And so as the priest, you know, he would pass into the holy place, he would also make a transition in time, temporally. We can think of this in terms of the garden motif. The holy place was decorated in vines and garden-like. The idea is that there was a time and place, the Garden of Eden, where God met human beings and walked with them in the cool of the day. That God was accessible, and God is now accessible in the microcosm that is the temple, but Jesus is the true temple. We now have access to God. Eternity is once again intersecting time in his temple. Where is his temple? His people are his temple. That's what Ephesians is going to say. All of this to say, I think we imagine the world and people and things exist according to their own foundation. You know, this is secularity. This is what it means to live in a secular age. Our experience, even of our Christian faith and of God, I think is filtered through a kind of secular, mechanical arrangement. Rather than experiencing the presence of God in the glorious world around us, our experience puts him at a distance. Think here of Genesis. I think it's describing this experiential reality, the shift. First of all, it's poetry, the Hebrew poetry of Genesis 1 and 2. And in this poetry, there is the word of hayah. It's just breathing. And the breathing is easy in Genesis 1 because the tree of breath is there. We could state it in different vocabulary. Life is easy because life is readily available in the tree of life. And the tree is mediating then the point of God's giving eternal presence or breath. And then the fall, it's also depicted. We often miss this in the English, but it says that Eve will breathlessly go breathing after. In other words, she's losing her breath is the poetic picture. As she turns from the tree of breath, the tree of life, to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, the imagery is that she no longer has breath, life within herself, and she's going to seek that breath in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it only circulates the imminent self-referential frame. This is Charles Taylor's definition of secularity. What is the secular? It all exists in an imminent frame without transcendence breaking in. And I think the Hebrew poetry depicts drowning because of a lack of life, a lack of air, a lack of transcendence. And this desperate desire to catch your breath can be definitive of your life. It's depicted as death dealing. That's what death is. And so Everything is included in this. There's multiple teachings of the Bible. The temple as microcosm, image bearing, it's inclusive. It's not just that as individuals, but we bear the image in relationship to God as creator and in relationship to creation. Resurrection, we talked about this, has to do not simply with an individual, but it is the resurrection of the cosmos. There's a re reversal. And so there's a twofold interdependence of humans and the world and humans and God. 
And I think what we need to include in this is the overlapping of time, the ages, Ion, with eternity. And this gets at our present experience of a different reality. And so Ephesians depicts how God, the eternal God, is working in time. Or to state it broadly, how heaven and earth are coming together. And focus on going to heaven when we die is missing this. That, oh, I just want eternal security in the future. No, you're experiencing eternality in the present. And I'm afraid that a focus simply on the future misses the deep sickness that is sin. I don't know if you've read. We have now more billionaires and millionaires than we've ever had. There's more poor people, but there's more billionaires too. They form a kind of an exclusive club. And a lot of these guys, they have so much money. But they're very worried that if there is some sort of natural catastrophe or nuclear war, that they won't be prepared. And so some have been building bunkers in Kansas. They have One guy describes he has a helicopter that's continually gassed up and ready to take off to take him to. He has a private island. He stocked it with water and food and weapons. One of these guys, his name is Tim Chang, he says, if there is a civil war or a giant earthquake that cleaves off part of California, we want to be ready. And he's talking about his friends, that there are many, many of these people. My current state of mind is oscillating between optimism and sheer terror. The New Testament picture of salvation, I'm afraid if we misconstrue it, can just feed into the terror. In other words, we can be like the billionaires and say, well, I got my security. But the New Testament pictures, it says, fear not. We don't do this by feeding into or presuming that we need to fear by addressing it at its root. And there is this lack, this desire, you know, the sinful drive toward death addressed in the death and resurrection of Christ. Salvation is connected to having plenty. There's plenty of life to go around. There's plenty to eat in the wilderness. There's plenty of room in the house of God. There's an abundance of living water. But in each instance, the lack of life in the face of death, that's what's being confronted. And there's a different, fearless quality of life. A different experiential reality that we can have. As Isaiah depicts it, this salvific liberation pertains to everything. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. That is, all the parts of the earth are involved in this redemption. So if we think, you know, humanity begins in a garden, they meet up with God in a garden, and the loss of the image is conjoined, they also lose their dwelling place in the garden. And the new heaven and new earth is depicted in Isaiah, in Malachi, in Revelation as a restoration of the garden. Restoration to plenteous food and water and life. The cosmos, the earth, the garden, were all put into place. You know, that's the cosmic picture in the temple theology. It's a fit habitation for God, and it will be restored as a fit habitation for God and humans to meet. 
And so the human image-bearing capacity, it's not something that we have apart from God or from the rest of creation. Human embodiment is interwoven with the stellar spaces, right? We know we're made of stardust, that we are carbon-based with the atmosphere, the air we breathe, with the peculiarities of the food that we eat. Humans are inextricably linked to the environment. We depend on nature for life, clean air and water, a stable climate, and we also impact the environment. And so one of the implications of bodily resurrection is that restoration of the image is inclusive of an alternative cosmic order. Sin brought about disruption. Now this is, I read Francis Schaeffer years and years ago. And he described it that human disobedience, alienation, it occurs as internal alienation. You know, it's psychological. Social alienation, you know, between humans. Alienation from nature. So spiritual, psychological, sociocultural, ecological. I want to add one though. I would add that there's a temporal dislocation involved in death. That there's no longer the intersection of eternity into time. And there was a time in which it was unclear. You know, we used to, when I was a child even, I don't think people conceived of the grand impact that we have on the world. Now it's clear that humans are having a detrimental effect on wildlife, on ecosystems, just the trend for all of creation due to humans. And so climate scientists, you know, we were talking about this, that in Antarctica, it's the highest temperatures they've ever experienced. We know that floods, hurricanes, weather systems, they're not simply acts of God, but they're natural events impacted by an imbalance introduced by humans. We now understand how God's image lost impacts the world in which we live in. And significantly, the Bible grounds God's glorious work in Christ in both creation and redemption of creation. Jesus' work is... In Colossians, he is the firstborn of all creation. All creation is being reborn. He's the firstborn from the dead. All creation, all people are being reborn. In the book of Revelation, God is praised in him celebrating both creation and redemption through Christ. And so the Bible envisions a transformed new creation. The new creation we are now experiencing in Christ. We are the first fruits, not only of our own salvation, but all of creation is being healed or should be being healed through us. Scripture presents salvation as a divine plan for the restoration of all things. Acts 3.21, Ephesians 1.10, God has a plan for the fullness of time to bring everything in heaven and earth together in reconciliation under the headship of Jesus Christ. All things, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and invisible, I'm just quoting Paul, the plan of redemption is broad, as broad as the scope of creation and as deep as the depth of sin. As Paul says in Romans, where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. He describes the groaning of creation. It's a suffering that marks that God is reconciling to himself all things, 
whether things on heaven or things on earth, by making peace through Christ. And so as we put it last week, heaven and earth, God's sphere, our sphere, they interlock in the temple, which was indicative of the nature of the intersection between eternity and time. When Jesus shows up at the temple, you know, the shadow is traded for the reality. This thing's happening. Where the temple had illustrated it, Christ is the reality. You understand, part of the illustration of the temple is the difficulty of this thing. The temple was made up of a series of walls that had to be broken down in order to obtain access to God. The barriers are walls, the dividing walls. Paul says the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down in Christ Jesus. And so woven throughout Jesus' appearance in the Gospels is the fulfillment of this imagery. God has shown up in his cosmic temple and he's remaking it for a fit dwelling place for God and humans to meet up. So in conclusion of the first humans, they were put into the garden and the garden and that surrounding, that was who they were. You can't take the country out of the country boy, right? Their relationship to the garden, one another and God were interwoven. And this, I believe, included a peculiar time in which they could directly obtain life. It's called Sabbath time. And the writer of Hebrews and Paul will both say that we've entered into this special Sabbath time. The natural and supernatural were fused. Eternity has intersected time. And we now inhabit this Sabbath dwelling. And so what Ephesians is depicting is a continual dwelling in the seventh day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.